I'm Laura Rumbly, and this is episode 21 in the EAE podcast series. We're so glad you've tuned in. Today, we're in conversation with Phil Honeywood, who serves as Chief Executive Officer of the International Education Association of Australia, or IEAA, as it's commonly known. Australia has been in the international higher education news quite a bit recently. The sector's heavy reliance on international student enrollments has been a source of significant challenge during the COVID-19 pandemic, especially given Australia's very tight border restrictions and local lockdown measures. As we reach the midpoint of calendar year 2021 and the 18 month mark of global disruption due to the pandemic, it looks like Australia is beginning to open its doors again, little by little, to some international students. We thought it would be an interesting moment to check in with Phil Honeywood on the latest developments on this front and to explore what some of the longer term implications of this crisis might be on Australian higher education overall. Phil, it's wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thank you so much for being with us. I'd like to get us started with kind of a big picture question for you, if I may. I know it's extremely difficult to generalize, but I wonder if you might be able to characterize the overall mood and mindset of the international education community in Australia at this moment in time. It's been a roller coaster ride, Laura, for our very diverse um, and usually very vibrant, dynamic international education sector. We've had some really good news today, um, uh, only a few hours ago, in that uh, before we recording this podcast, that the New South Wales state government, our largest uh, populated state, uh, have finalised and signed off on their official student return plan, and that will now go to the federal government this week. And this follows from a smaller state, South Australia, who've already sent their official student return plan into the federal government two weeks ago for uh, final approval. So given that New South Wales, with Sydney as its uh, capital city, known to many people in Europe, uh, is our biggest market state, then this is a really good good news. Now, it's only going to be 250 returning international students per week, and they're going to be on charter flights, and they're not going to be in hotel quarantine. They're going to be in designated purpose-built student accommodation. But what it means is that it's going to provide some momentum, and we hope the other four states and two territories in Australia will follow suit when they start to see South Australia and New South Wales get market share off them because they've opened up their borders finally for some returning students. This issue of student mobility into Australia has really been in the headlines recently. Um, We are excited to hear these new developments with these two key states, and I know uh, hopeful that there will be more movement in other parts of the country as we move along. What is the position of the IEAA, the International Education Association of Australia, with respect to these kinds of dynamics? What is the role that you're playing in, in this process? It's I refer to it as walking the the barbed wire fence because on the one hand, I have a number of government appointments uh, for my sins. I'm the convener of the National Council for International Education, which involves six federal ministers chaired by our federal education minister and 11 non-ministerial expert members. So I guess I'm part of the problem as well as hopefully part of the solution wearing that hat on behalf of IAA. I also sit on three state government separate international advisory councils and a number of other federal government related committees. So on the one hand, as many people would know, if you're an advocate or a lobbyist, you have to be able to talk to government from outside, from one side of the fence. On the other hand, you also want to be part of government decision making, which then requires you to 
join forces on some government key advisory bodies and committees. So IEA is trying to really ensure that we advocate strongly on behalf of not just our public university members, but we've also got private higher education providers, English language colleges, government high schools, private high schools, and even public vocational education as well. So we're trying to advocate for the whole sector whilst working behind the scenes with federal and state governments to get them to acknowledge that this is a vitally important industry and also requires far more student-focused support services than Australia's been willing to provide up to now. So the there's been a lot of uncertainty and there's been, I would guess, at different moments, different paces of change and decision-making, perhaps sometimes very rapid in movement at other times slower than actors might wish. I wonder if we can talk a bit about some of the supports that have been activated to help different actors weather this very fluid period. So in this area, we might be able to talk, for example, about the kind of support that Australian universities and other higher education institutions are offering their students. You've mentioned a bit of that. Um, Maybe even some indications of how institutions are being assisted by the government and IEAA's own role in, in supporting its stakeholders. How is that support uh, ecosystem looking at the moment? Look, it's a really important question, Laura. And what I can say there is that we were disappointed at the start of the pandemic last year when our Prime Minister made an unfortunate public statement about, well, international students can just go home if they don't have the means to stay in Australia. And that was widely reported around the globe. And then there was an absence of leadership for any sort of national hardship fund, which some other countries, national governments, were able and willing to provide. So it was very much then left to separate state governments, to individual education providers, to charities, to really come together. I mean, the federal government did provide some money to Red Cross in Australia, but unfortunately, unfortunately it became fairly disjointed and was difficult to communicate the comprehensive nature of some of these hardship support mechanisms. For example, in New South Wales state, their state government provided accommodation subsidies for international students in severe hardship, whereas in my home state of Victoria, there were food coupons and um, cash grants provided. So they were wonderful at the time, but they actually didn't come across as any coherent, coordinated national approach, which I think let Australia down reputation-wise. For IEA, we've done a lot of work with our Council for International Students of Australia, CISA, And we've been leading a coordinated attempt to provide them with secretariat support. So being a volunteer student-led organisation that brings together mainly public university international students. Uh, Every year they have national elections and you finish up with a whole new national executive committee. So we need to provide them with some sort of organisational memory and sort of arm's length from student politics support. Um, And so we're acting as a conduit for that to happen. And we've got funding from different state governments and different education providers, peak bodies, to have a secretariat function in support of our Council for International Students. Quite apart from that, happily, whoever the national president is of that Council for International Students automatically goes on to the Federal Government's National Council for International Education with me. So they have a seat at the table with the six federal ministers to advocate strongly on behalf of their thousands of members. You've mentioned the word reputation, and I wonder actually how you reflect on Australia's reputation now as a a global hub for international students in particular. What do you make of that reputation at the moment and what kind of work might lie ahead in terms of bolstering that if one might think about the challenges of the past year in particular? Certainly. So... Look, Australia has a long-standing, great reputation as a pluralistic society, welcoming, very strongly multicultural, part of the new world, if you like, compared to 
what they suggest is the old world of Europe. In fact, I recall former president of France, Mitterrand, saying, why would I ever come to the new world when everything important happens in the old world? Well, of course, part of the joy of living in Australia is that we challenge pre-existing social norms. We're a very fluid society and we, you know, very middle class focused without the, many of the hierarchies that some other countries have difficulties with. So they're the attributes as well as a clean, green environment, as well as um, in the same time zone with our most significant markets in the um, Indo-Pacific region. But obviously, in terms of reputation, because we've adopted this Fortress Australia mentality throughout the COVID pandemic and being an island continent, that really um, exacerbates that Fortress Australia mindset. What it does tend to mean is that we've pulled up the drawbridge and said, you can't come in. And that in itself is not part of the ethos of what a welcoming, safe, pluralistic society should be about. So I think that's led to some confused messages about our reputation globally. And on equity grounds, it's also been very difficult for fourth-year, fifth-year medical dental students, for example, who need to come back to Australia on equity grounds just to um, do their field placements in order to get their qualification, having invested hundreds of thousands of dollars to um, get three-quarters of the way through their course of study. And we should be providing more exemptions for them to come back in a COVID-safe way. So ironically, we've contained the COVID virus better than almost any other country on the planet, but there's no health dividend for us because we've kept the drawbridge pulled up and the social license to operate with our wider Australian community has obviously been problematic whenever we rattle the cage and say we should be open-minded about bringing young people back into the country. It has been really fascinating to watch around the world the equations that governments are trying to work out, isn't it, between opening and closing and movement and and non-movement. The sheer numbers of international students in Australia make their situation very visible and their situation clearly has major knock-on effects across your system. I wonder, though, if you might be able to point to some other aspects of the story of internationalization in Australian higher education that you think we should also be paying attention to right now. Absolutely. So our former foreign minister, Julie Bishop, who happily had been education minister many years ago, from the time she was education minister, she was concerned that Australia had a reputation for bringing plane loads of primarily Asian-based students paying high fees to study at our universities, but we weren't sending many Australians into our own region for similar study opportunities and programs. So to her credit, when she became foreign minister some years later and retired only recently, she managed to obtain a $100 million initial four-year grant to establish what we call the New Colombo Plan. Now, People in Europe would probably not be aware that post-World War II, Australia was one of a number of nations that provided full tuition fee scholarships to emerging leaders in Asian countries. I think it was a fairly utilitarian sort of a motive at the time because they were worried about communism coming down through Southeast Asia or whatever. And we provided significant scholarships to young scientists, political aspirants, future business leaders, and a whole generation of young people who are now leaders in those fields back in their home countries in Asia benefited from gaining a tuition fee-free post-secondary education in Australia. Now, of course, in the 1980s, by that time, we thought, well, we could charge fees and we began doing so. And so there was this pressure that was applied to politicians such as our former Prime Minister, Julie Bishop, that Australia should put something back into the region. And so this new Colombo Plan program, scholarship program, which I was on the steering committee for when it was founded, it's now providing something in the order of 13,000 mobility scholarships per year for Australian undergraduates to study in over about 25 countries across the Indo-Pacific region 
short-term mobility, but also semester-long and four-year-long scholarship programs. So, uh, you know, I mean, for example, Indonesia is the number one study destination, our closest neighbour, but China's number two. And we've had to pivot that program as it's been refunded, uh, funded again for another four-year period into virtual study, virtual mobility until the pandemic concludes. But interestingly enough, normally a program such as that would be auspiced and supervised by our education department because it was our foreign minister's baby, her, her pet project. It's our foreign affairs department that run this program. So people used to joke that foreign affairs for any country was really a sort of a policy wonks department. Well, in Australia, it's now also a service delivery department through this wonderful scholarship program. And it's really created a lot of soft power benefits for Australia. And President Xi Jinping, even when he came to Australia on his first official visit, actually noted the importance of Australia's new Colombo Plan um, scholarship program in his speech to the Australian Parliament. So I think that's a good takeaway that you know, modelled on some of the wonderful Erasmus programs in Europe, on the study abroad programs in uh, America. This has really been something Australia has been long overdue in terms of engaging with our own region. Indeed, I really am very fascinated by Australia's particular role in East Asia um, and the broader uh, geographic domain there. So I think there's a lot to watch there, as you say. So I guess for some of us at certain times of day, it feels like there might be light at the end of the tunnel with the COVID-19 pandemic. As you look toward the future from where you sit, I wonder what you see as some of the key lessons that university leaders in Australia have been or may be taking away from this experience and how you think the sector will act on those lessons, let's say in the next five to 10 years. There's probably three aspects that I would want to focus on in answer to that important question. One is that Australia has been probably too content to just recruit tens of thousands of full fee paying students to come and study in Australia itself. Compared to other nations such as the UK, we haven't focused as much on transnational education with either bricks and mortar campuses in Asian nations in particular, or in two plus two programs, uh, partnership programs, uh, or even with high schools as well, international high schools. We don't have very many of them compared to UK, Canada, uh, America. So there's definitely been a lesson learned throughout the pandemic that Australia needs to be more involved in the transnational education offshore delivery area. It's also been pleasantly surprising to see the appetite in some Asian countries, particularly China, Vietnam, for online learning. Now, obviously, as we come out of COVID, many families, particularly in the Indo-Pacific region, will find affordability challenges in sending their children to a country like Australia, where just like Europe, where accommodations costly and tuition fees are costly. So perhaps a hybrid model where online learning might be the entree, the, uh, you know, the initial stepping stone into then eventually coming to finish the course of study in Australia may well be um, a key role for online learning to play and blended learning. In equal measure, I think we're finding now that increasing numbers of other countries in Asia, such as Malaysia, Singapore, and China itself, are now competing with Australia as study destination countries and education hubs. So the question is, in Australia, again, partly because of affordability challenges for middle-class families offshore, are we becoming more of a postgraduate study destination rather than an undergraduate study destination? And in all of that, we've come to realise that we are incredibly reliant on two nations in particular, on China for 35% of our market share of international students, India for 17%, even the third country, Nepal, around 14%. So diversification of student source countries is a definite priority now for many Australian education providers. And not just diversification, Laura, of countries where we recruit students from, but also diversification of courses, that there's been a heavy reliance on commerce and business degree programmes 
and that may have suited many universities in the past, but we're finding that young people are really wanting to orientate themselves to more specialist career-related courses in IT, in different engineering areas and, and such like. And we're going to have to pivot away from heavy reliance on the cookie-cutter business and commerce degrees that served Australia so well in the past. Fantastic. Phil Honeywood, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to share your insights with us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Laura. That was Phil Honeywood, Chief Executive Officer of the International Education Association of Australia. Our session notes for this episode include a link to the IEAA's website, where you can explore extensive information about current developments in Australian international higher education. Closer to home, for those of us in Europe anyway, the EAE is gearing up for the 2021 EAE Community Exchange. We hope you'll join us for this inspiring and interactive four-day virtual event taking place from September 28th to October 1st. The Community Exchange offers the opportunity to connect with thousands of international higher education professionals, enjoy upwards of 70 live and on-demand sessions, and more. Check out all the details on the EAE website at www.eae.org. Of course, well before the Community Exchange, you can expect more installments of the EAE podcast series. Our next episode will be published in two weeks. Thank you for listening, sharing, and subscribing to our series. And if you have feedback to share, we hope you'll be in touch at info at Until next time, all good wishes to you from the EAE.